Pie in the Sky Media. This series contains adult language and descriptions of graphic violence throughout. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Criminal Mischief with Carolyn and Brandon. You're listening to Episode 65, Part 2 of What Happened to Susan Cox Powell. Before we get started, if you haven't already, please go back and listen to Episode 64, Part 1 of What Happened to Susan Cox Powell. But to recap, on last week's episode, we left off with Josh Powell, Susan's husband, being interviewed about his missing wife, Susan. Remember, he said that he'd taken his boys out camping after midnight in a blizzard. Now, from the very beginning of this interview, even though his wife had only been reported missing the day before, out of the gate, he mentions wanting an attorney. On the way over here, I actually did call my attorneys, and they said I should definitely have an attorney. What's that? I, I called my attorneys, which is prepaid legal. Okay. And they said that I should definitely have an attorney. But the detective almost, like, shames him into moving forward with speaking with him without an attorney. Well, let me ask you this then, okay? This is, do you feel like you're under arrest? I, I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> I didn't even think it was that. I didn't, didn't even sink in yesterday. But I don't know where she's at, and she ain't back yet. So you don't know if you, 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 don't know if you feel like you're under arrest or not? I feel <clears> like you guys are... <laughs> I mean, I already told you guys everything I can think of, and I haven't, oh, and I actually did think of only one thing. Um, she has another friend that I wasn't even thinking of. It's one of her closest friends is Kiersey. Well, let me explain but, something to you, Josh, okay? But I can't even think straight. Let me explain something to you. You're not under arrest, okay? If you were under arrest, I would have came to your home, I would have put handcuffs on you, and I would have brought you here. So understand that right now. You're not under arrest for anything. Okay, the problem that we have and what we're investigating is what? A missing person, right? You're right. That missing person being your wife. And initially this all turned out to be basically missing people, an entire family. And that's why we were notified, okay? Okay. And that's why we were at your home. That's why we broke the window into your home. If there was anybody in there that they were okay, okay? This report came from your mom which is obviously very concerned, and it was started by the daycare provider. By the way, she has a key to my house. The daycare provider has a key, so I don't know why they why they had to break the window when she started it and she had a key. The detective redirects Josh away from his anger that a window had been broken when first responders were trying to help save their lives, believing they could be suffering from carbon monoxide poisoning, and that's why the family was missing. He was able to get Josh back on track. After all, they were there to try to find Susan. He's like, don't you want to help us find your wife? We just want answers to questions that only you would know as the person closest to her. What were her hobbies? How was work? Who were her friends? They wanted to get a better understanding of who they should be talking to and where they should look for her. So the concern here is obviously, and you, you mentioned that we talked. And by the way, I just, we spoke yesterday, um, got some general stuff from you. All right. Okay. I, mean, what, I mean, what do you want us to do? Do you not want us to talk to you? Do you not want us to talk to anybody and just leave oh, you alone no, and hope that she shows up? Is that what you want us to do? No. 
Okay. I mean, I'm just trying to do my job. You know what I'm saying? Who's the closest person to her? Who's the closest I mean, person to her? Who? That's me. Exactly. Josh would agree to be interviewed without an attorney, but he was very wishy-washy. When he was asked to describe the details about even the night that Susan went missing, he would say that he didn't remember the activity that they were doing. But when you talk to um, Susan about taking the kids and doing some and generator, tell me more details on that conversation. Um, she just, you know, I told her that I wanted to, and she just said, well, we have a heater. We'll take the boys out in the cold without a heater. I'm like, yeah, I got my generator. Mm-hmm. Okay, that was it. Basically, I mean, it wasn't a long conversation. When asked if Susan had any enemies... Even though Josh answered the questions passively and without really saying much, he would say that not only did Susan not have any enemies, but that she would never leave her boys. She's left your boys. She's left you. No, I don't think she did. You don't think so? No. Help me. Where should we I think she would have gone to work. She she would have tried to go to work. That's what she would have been in the process of doing. She didn't go to work. We know that. During this three-hour-long interview, the detective was just trying to get to the bottom of where Susan could be. And every so often, he would leave, saying that he was going to get something to drink or he had to go check on something. Well, I'm concerned about your wife not being around. So let me step out for a second. I'll come back and grab you. Okay. Grab me for what? Well, if you don't want to talk, then what? Then I guess you can leave. I mean, you could leave any time anyways. I, yeah... I mean, let me think about it for a couple days and... Your wife is missing, Josh. Yeah, but I've already... And you want to think about it for a couple of days? I've already answered everything. I told you I would answer everything. I don't understand why. Are you willing to do a... um, Oh, sorry, you're still... Can I talk to you for a minute? No. Can I talk to you for a minute? We'll talk before. I just got to ask you something. But what Josh didn't know was that when the detective left, he was actually getting updates on another interview that was taking place. A colleague who was performing a child forensic interview with Charlie. Right there. Yeah. Good job. It's got nice light, huh? Pretty. Pretty, huh? Okay, Charlie. How old are you today? Four. You're four? Well, what did you do last night? Um, Before you went to bed? Go camping. You went camping? Tell me about camping. Camping is one where you have s'mores. Where you have s'mores? Yeah. Yeah. And s'mores start with marshmallows and graham crackers and chocolate and another graham cracker. The s'mores have marshmallows, graham crackers, and chocolate, and another graham cracker? Yeah. I see. So you had s'mores yesterday, last night? Yeah. Where were you camping at? 
I was camping there at Dinosaur National Park. Dinosaur Park? No, Dinosaur National Park. Dinosaur National Park. And Charlie would drop a bombshell. He would say that his mother had come with him. Who were you camping with? Um, my dad and my mom and my, my little brother. Dad, your mom, and your brother? Yeah. Charlie would say that his mother hadn't come back. So your mom stayed at the park? Yeah. Where did she stay at the park? Um, she, Do you know where? She stayed at the National National Park. Do you know where at the park? No? No. She, my mom states where a crystal are. Where what are? Where crystals are. The crystals? Yeah. Crystals? Is that what you're saying? Crystals? Yeah. Your mom stayed where the crystals are? Yeah. Is that what you said? Yeah. Obviously, that's a pretty damning statement for Charlie to make. And many people interpreted that description to mean that Susan was dead. But the thing is, during that interview, Charlie had also made other comments that hadn't happened that night, which included a statement that they'd taken an airplane to go camping. The detective went back to Josh, who'd been talking to a different detective. Josh said he wanted to go, but both detectives said that he wasn't going anywhere. I spoke with some of our other detectives, and you're going to have to wait here with us. I'm not going to go anywhere. One of our detectives just uh, interviewed your children, and uh, your children are telling our detectives that uh, mom went with you guys last night, and then she didn't come back. She did not go with us. Okay. Well, with that, just getting that information, you're not going to go. Why do you want to leave? I'm detain you. But then, in a strange turn of events, that same detective would tell Josh that he was free to go. Honestly, I'm already feeling sick. I, I wanted to go a long time ago. And at this point, I'm... Uh, okay. If you want to leave, you can leave. I can leave? Yeah, if you want to leave, you can leave. Okay. Now, and you're keeping my phone? Or I'm going to keep your phone. It sounds like, despite circumstantial evidence, which some say would have supported an arrest that afternoon, instead, Josh was able to walk out of that police station a free man. Some have said that higher-ups didn't believe that they had the physical evidence that they needed to tie him to Susan's disappearance. They had no body, and there was no physical evidence to support that she'd even been murdered. So they cut him loose. What they would find out later was that the morning before Josh even came to that interview, he'd been a busy bee, cleaning out his garage, doing laundry, scrubbing out his minivan, the one he drove camping, and had driven to the station in. Investigators would tell Josh as he was leaving, that his minivan would be ready soon. They had been going over it during the interview. What they didn't tell him was that they'd installed a tracker on it, hoping that since they had to cut him free, that he would lead them to Susan. The problem with that was, Josh didn't wait around for his minivan to be returned to him. He walked out of the police station, called a taxi, got a ride to the Salt Lake City Airport, and rented a car. He would be gone for two days, and police, expecting Josh to pick up his minivan, hadn't been following him. They didn't have any idea where he went for the next 48 hours. Later, after he returned, they would find out that during those two days, he'd racked up more than 800 miles on that rental car. Where did he go? What did he do? They didn't have a clue. Police would become even more suspicious in the days following Susan's disappearance. They retraced Josh's camping trip route, 
but they couldn't find any evidence of the campsite that Josh had described. They had executed search warrants for the house and minivan, and in the home they would find a small amount of blood on the floor by that recently cleaned sofa. If you'll recall in last week's episode, there was a wet spot on the sofa when police had broken a window to get inside their home after Josh's mother and sister had reported the family missing. They had been worried that the family had fallen victim to carbon monoxide poisoning, which is why they hadn't shown up at school or work. But all had been quiet in the home that morning. There'd been no sign of a struggle. The only thing odd was that a couple of box fans had been placed in front of that wet spot on the sofa, which had been recently cleaned. But during Josh's interview, he hadn't said anything about blood. They cleaned the couch. She wanted to, what, was the couch dirty? Was there a stain on the couch or something? Or? It was just all the fevers and snot from kids who wipe their nose on it. Okay. They, just, they just do brutal things to the furniture. It's like the other couch needs it too. Okay. They'd also discovered that Susan's cell phone had been in the minivan the entire time that he'd been camping with his boys. Again, Josh couldn't really explain why he had Susan's cell phone or why the SIM card had been removed from it, why he'd left a message on her voicemail when he had her phone in the car. He would only say that he didn't know that her phone was in the vehicle. Digging into Josh and Susan's life, investigators would speak to close friends and co-workers of Susan's who would paint a very stark picture of a marriage in distress on the verge of collapse. Now, Susan wanted a divorce. She wanted out. In fact, one of Susan's friends would allege that Josh had told them in casual conversation that if he wanted to get rid of a body, that he would hide it in an abandoned mine shaft, that the Utah desert was full of them. And sadly, he wasn't wrong. The Utah desert is a place with a long history of mining. It had been rich in silver, copper, coal, and uranium. The number of open, abandoned mine shafts in the Utah desert is staggering. The Bureau of Land Management estimates upwards of 11,000. And Josh definitely had a motive to kill his wife. She threatened divorce, and he'd taken out a life insurance policy on her for more than a million dollars. Investigators had recovered that secret letter that Susan had placed in her safety deposit box that said, quote, I want it documented that there is extreme turmoil in our marriage, adding, if I die, it may not be an accident, even if it looks like one. So Susan had gone missing on December 6th, and by December 24th, Josh was considered a person of interest. But he wasn't arrested. It appeared that he was busy moving on with his life. He had withdrawn Charlie and Braden from daycare, cashed out Susan's retirement accounts. In late December, Josh would leave Utah with Charlie and Braden, bringing them to Washington State for the holidays, and he would say to get away from the intense media attention. Essentially leaving the work of actually finding Susan to law enforcement, relatives, and friends who had galvanized a campaign of posting flyers and speaking to the media. The story of the missing mom who had disappeared while her husband had taken their two little boys out camping in the middle of the night during a blizzard to make s'mores, that spread like wildfire. So many people came out to search for Susan, except her husband Josh, who would never participate in any efforts to find his missing wife. On January 6th, Josh quietly returned with his brother Michael. Now you're gonna wanna remember Michael. We'll get to him in a bit. But for now, Josh and Michael drove from Washington to Utah. It was a whirlwind trip. They went there to pack up Josh and Susan's belongings from their house. And then they immediately drove back to Puyallup in Washington where they placed the bulk of their belongings in a storage unit. 
And that was it. Josh and his boys were now permanently living at his father's home, along with Josh's two brothers, Michael and Jonathan, and his sister, Alina. And it was during this time that it was alleged that Josh and his father, Stephen, had started the official SusanPowell.org website. And a lot of the anonymous content that was posted there was taken from Susan's private journals. She had seven of them. So on this site, anonymous entries would claim that Josh's reputation was being smeared by the LDS church, Susan's family, and Josh's estranged sister, Jennifer, who had tried to get him to confess to murdering Susan. These anonymous posts, which were believed to be authored by Josh and his father, pushed an alternate theory to Susan's disappearance, that she'd actually run off with another man named Stephen Kochner. Stephen had disappeared from Utah the same week as Susan, the posts theorized that Susan and Stephen had run away to Brazil together because Stephen had done missionary work there and knew how to speak Portuguese. Susan's family rejected these claims as being unsupported by any evidence and that Susan would never leave her children. And as the months wore on, police would continue to search for Susan. And though they were very tight-lipped about the investigation, it was pretty clear what they believed happened to her. As they weren't looking in Brazil, they were looking in the desert. But remember, there are 11,000 mines. Without a tip to help pinpoint a direction, how would they ever find Susan if she was even out there? And here's the thing. Not only did Susan's parents believe that Josh was responsible for their daughter's disappearance, even though they held out hope that she would be found alive, because they didn't want to give up on their daughter. To make matters more unbearable, Josh refused to allow Susan's family to see her boys and he wouldn't give them Susan's private diaries. And by August of 2011, investigators started looking for Susan in the Nevada desert. Como 4 News reports. Utah police have ended their search in the eastern Nevada mountains after two days in that area. But earlier today, investigators focused on an old mining camp in an abandoned town. Detectives rode on ATVs just to get to certain parts of this mining area, then took photos inside mine shafts and took down coordinates, too. Their efforts started yesterday based on new information that came from evidence they got through search warrants. This area is roughly 235 miles southwest of Susan's Utah home. Now, the Powells lived close to the Coxes, and during a rally for Susan at a local shopping center, Stephen and Josh would crash the gathering. Chuck Cox, the missing woman's father, squared off with Susan Powell's father-in-law at a Fred Meyer parking lot in Puyallup. How is you coming here helping to find Susan? It isn't helping to find Susan. How is your standing at our neighborhood market helping to find Susan, Chuck? Steve Powell says Cox is spreading misinformation about his son and harassing his family by staging events where they shop and live. I was in your neighborhood the day the newspaper were there. I wasn't in your neighborhood at all. Chuck is a liar. Chuck is lying. Heated clash took a turn when Susan's husband Josh pulled up and made a teary-eyed claim. Chuck Cox uses my sons as pawns in the media to drive whatever message he is trying to drive. I'm not able to discuss. Susan disappeared from their home in Utah a year and a half ago. Police say Josh Powell is the only person of interest, though he's never been arrested or charged. I have done everything I can with investigators. We're dealing with a lot of. Uh, uncooperative behavior from Josh Powell. He just has not come um, forward and is not cooperative with police. Josh says he spoke to detectives initially, but says he stopped because police try to make his son say things that aren't true. They attacked my sons. I will protect my sons. 
from anyone and everyone. Josh kept his two boys in the car while he spoke, but then Chuck Cox's granddaughters came over and asked to see their young cousins. The deep rift in this family rose to the surface. Josh's dad, Stephen, wasn't stopping there. He continued to speak to the media in response to a press conference that had been held by the West Valley City Police about their searches for Susan in the desert. In his interviews, Stephen was weaponizing Susan's private diaries against her in an attempt to make her look bad, to act like she was promiscuous, that she was a bad mom who had abandoned her children to be with another man, this Stephen Kochner. Here's Josh's dad in an interview with ABC. Let's stay focused on the journals, okay? Because okay. I think that that's very interesting. I believe that Susan had a liaison with uh, somebody who disappeared the same week she did. She was very open sexually, and when I read her journals, it's clear that most of the male, the relationships she got into with males were ones that she initiated. And here he is giving an interview with the Salt Lake Tribune, trying to push the narrative that Susan had run off with another man, the missing Stephen Kochner. The answer, it would be Josh's vindication that we would move on. They had Susan, they maybe had Stephen Kosher, uh, whom we think she's with. We think they, I still believe that's a possibility. But we thought that would be the end of it. We thought they had them down there and they were just going down to pick them up. They had, maybe they had to get an extradition or order of some kind and from Nevada. And then they, you know, Friday morning, they'd have a big announcement for us. And, We'd all move on and live happily ever after. It just didn't happen. We're, we're really disappointed. So your belief is she's alive, she's with Oh, someone. yeah, we believe that. We believe she's alive. We believe she left with somebody. We're not sure if she's still with that somebody, but I don't know. She probably is. However, these interviews would backfire big time and became an opportunity for investigators. Stephen referencing Susan's journals was enough probable cause for police to get a search warrant for his home in Washington in late 2011. They were looking for Susan's private diaries. What they would find would shock and disgust the world. In Stephen's room, they found more than 4,500 photos of Susan and home videos that he'd taken of her, many of which were secret recordings, videos that showed him using a small mirror to spy on her when she was in the bathroom, Videos of how he'd stolen her underwear and pantyhose, secreting them back to his room, where he'd then take videos of himself with these stolen items, masturbating with her pantyhose, smelling her underwear. He'd also stolen and preserved used feminine products from Susan, her hair and toenail clippings, which he cataloged in plastic bags. He'd kept these things for years, since the time after Susan and Josh had gotten married and they'd lived with him. Inside a locked cabinet, investigators would find that Susan wasn't Stephen's only victim. Police say inside Powell's bedroom, they found thousands of images of mostly young girls, many naked, being videotaped without their knowledge. Prosecutors say two former neighbors, sisters just 7 and 12, were repeatedly videotaped while bathing. Police said Powell shot from his bedroom window into the neighbor's bathroom window using a telephoto lens. After that search in November of 2011, Stephen was arrested on charges of voyeurism and child pornography. Police made sure to alert DSHS. They believed the boys were in danger. Stephen had been ruled out as a suspect in Susan's disappearance, but the fact that he had child pornography in his possession was a cause of great concern as it related to the boys who were living there, which is why the state of Washington acted, and Charlie and Braden became wards of the state. Chuck Cox, Susan's dad, didn't waste any time filing for custody of Charlie and Braden. 
They wanted to adopt them, and the grandparents were granted temporary custody, but only as foster parents. The state retained official custody of Charlie and Brayden, which meant that Josh could still get his kids back. He did not want Charlie and Brayden with Susan's parents. And thus would begin a bitter battle between Josh and Susan's parents. Remember, up until this point, he'd had total control of Charlie and Brayden since Susan's disappearance in December of 2009. He had refused to allow the Coxes to spend any time with their grandchildren, to even speak with them. Basically, the state's position was that if Josh wanted to get his kids back, he'd have to move out of his father's home, and he would be required to undergo an evaluation by a forensic psychiatrist. After speaking with Josh for multiple sessions, the psychiatrist would report to the court that Josh did have adequate parenting skills, a steady employment history, and no criminal record or history of domestic violence. But he advised that because Josh was a part of ongoing criminal investigations, and because he couldn't bring himself to admit personal shortcomings, that he was overbearing with his sons, and that he was perpetually defensive and paranoid, which the psychiatrist believed were underlying narcissistic traits, the psychiatrist recommended that Josh have supervised visitation with his sons several times a week. In the beginning, that's what happened. Josh would have his supervised visits at a secure DSHS facility. But over time, Josh started to get loud. He said that he had satisfied the court's order, which was to provide a home for the boys outside of his father's place, and that he wanted to visit his boys at his new rental home. Here's Seattle attorney Ann Bremner, who represents the Cox family. Yeah, he was. He was very smart, and he was also somebody that was difficult and wanted to get his own way. And he would be very detailed in his explanations and his, his justifications for things that he did and his want to have the kids at his house, etc. So there are some that looked at this case and thought that, you know, he, he was such, he was so difficult that there was some giving in to him. Now, that's speculation on my part. Some people have said that. Josh would get his wish. His supervised visits with the boys began taking place at his new rental home. And on February 1st, 2012, Josh went to court believing that he was going to get his kids back. What he didn't anticipate was the interagency cooperation between investigators in Utah, who were working on Susan's disappearance, and Pierce County law enforcement in Washington. Investigators at both agencies were concerned about the welfare of the children. They didn't want Josh to regain custody of the boys. Obviously, he was a person of interest in the disappearance of their mother. Now that Charlie and Brayden were living with their grandparents full-time, they were talking openly about their mother. Brayden would draw a minivan with stick figures inside, and he pointed to each figure inside the vehicle. He'd say, that's me, that's Charlie, that's Daddy, and he'd drawn a stick figure in the trunk, and he said, that's Mommy. Their explanation for not arresting him was because there was no body. And so they didn't think that there would be a strong enough case. And they worried if they lost the case, it'd be double jeopardy and they couldn't try him again. Now, the flip side of that is they had the story he gave about camping in the snow at midnight with a two and a four year old. The fact she just disappears. They had blood in the house. They had fans drying the couches. They had him with the life insurance that he took out on her. They had a note in her safety deposit box where she said, if anything happens to me, my husband did it. You know, and other evidence. Investigators had set up another interview with Charlie. And from the beginning, it was clear that he'd been coached not to speak about his mother. When asked about where his mother was, he would say, I don't know where she is, that she was lost somewhere. And then, we can't talk about Susan or camping. He would add, I always keep things as secrets. 
Utah detectives would pass along never-before-released evidence that had been recovered from Josh and Susan's residence in Utah after she disappeared. Images that had been found on Josh's computer where characters from cartoons were engaging in incest. During that February 1st court hearing where Josh thought he was getting his kids back, this evidence was submitted. Josh denied having any knowledge of the images. He said that they didn't belong to him. The content wasn't illegal, but it was enough for a judge to order that Charlie and Braden remain with the Coxes, and that if Josh wanted any chance of getting his kids back, he would need to undergo what was called a psychosexual evaluation, which is an exam where they measure aberrant arousal. And he'd also have to take a polygraph test. He didn't want to answer questions about Susan's disappearance. Remember, he'd refused to take a polygraph since Susan went missing. Now, if he wanted to get his kids back, he would have to do both. But DSHS wouldn't make any changes to Josh's visitation schedule with Charlie and Braden, even though Susan's family expressed their grave concerns. They believe he wouldn't be capable of passing a polygraph or the psychosexual evaluation, and that he would be capable of anything. On Sunday, February 5, 2012, just four days after the court's requirement of the psychosexual evaluation, and the polygraph, like clockwork, Elizabeth, the social worker, came to pick up Charlie and Braden from the Cox's home. This was beyond gut-wrenching for Susan's parents, made worse by the fact that the boys didn't want to go to see their dad that day. But because the Coxes were technically just the foster parents, they had no choice but to let the boys go with Elizabeth. The plan was that Elizabeth would be back with the boys in about four and a half hours. Charlie and Braden climbed into her Prius, and together, they drove over to Josh's rental home. And although he had complied with the court's order to move out of his dad's home, he had secured that rental house, but he'd never really moved in. He remained living at his father's place. Elizabeth pulled up to the house, and she and the boys got out of the car and started walking towards the front door, which was open with Josh standing there. And despite how close Elizabeth had grown to Charlie and Braden, who treated her as if she were a grandmother, she'd gotten to know them, how Charlie loved dinosaurs and bugs, and Brayden was just a sweetheart. And even though they hadn't wanted to go, they loved their father. That day when he opened the door, they ran to him, couldn't get there fast enough, and Josh ushered them inside the house. Elizabeth had been just one, two steps behind the boys. When she reached the front door, there was a split-second exchange with Josh, and then... He slammed the door in her face and locked it. Through the door, Elizabeth could hear him explain, Charlie, I've got a big surprise for you. Then she heard Brayden cry out. Elizabeth banged on the door, kept ringing the bell, shouting, Josh, let me in. Then she smelt the distinct odor of gasoline fumes. She rushed away from the front door and called 911. Okay, it is uh, 
it here. You can't find me by GPS? No. Okay, it is, um, oh, I still can't find it. But I think I need help right away. He, he's on a very short lease with CSHS and CPS has been involved. And this is the craziest thing. He looked right at me and closed the door. Are you there? Yes, ma'am. I'm just waiting to know where you are. Okay. Elizabeth is desperate to get through to the 911 operator, that this is an emergency, that children are in danger. But the 911 operator's questions don't reflect any sense of urgency. And I'd like to pull out of the driveway because I smell gasoline and he won't let me in. You want to pull out of the driveway because you smell gasoline, but he won't let I you? Smoke. He, he won't let me in. He won't let you out of the driveway? He won't let me in the house. Whose house is it? He's got kids in the house and he won't let me in. It's a supervised visit. I understand. Whose house is it? Josh Powell. Okay, so you don't live there, right? No, I don't. No, I'm contracted to the state to provide supervised visitation. I see. Okay. And and who is there to exercise their visitation? I am. Uh, and the visit is with Josh Powell. And who's supervised? And he is the husband that I supervise. So you supervise and you're doing the visit? Yeah, you're I supervise yourself? I supervise myself. I'm the supervisor here. Wait a minute. If it's a supervised visit, you can't supervise yourself. If you're the I visitor. I do supervise myself. I'm the supervisor for the supervised visit. Okay, well, aren't you the one, make, aren't you the one making the visit? Or is there another person that you're supervising? No. There's, I'm the one that supervises. I pick up the kids with their grandparents. Yes. And then who visits with the children? Josh Powell. Okay, so you're supposed to be there to supervise Josh Powell's visit with the children. Yes, that's correct. And how did... And he's the husband of missing Susan Powell. How did... He, how, this is a high-profile case. How did he... How did he gain access to the children before you got he there? They, I was one step in back of them. Okay, so they he went into the house and then he locked you out. Emergency life-threatening situations first. The first available deputy. 
Well, this, this could be life-threatening. He went to court on Wednesday, and he he didn't get his kids back. And this is really, I'm, a, I'm afraid for their lives. Okay, has he threatened the lives of the children previously? I have no idea. All right, we'll have the first available deputy contact you. Thank you. After over 10 minutes trying to get an emergency response, Susan would feel the blast first, and then the boom from a massive explosion inside the home, which within seconds had become a fiery hellscape. The house, with Charlie and Braden inside, with their father Josh, was completely engulfed in flames. Hello? Hi, ma'am. Were you calling about the fire in the 8200 block? Yes, he exploded the house. Elizabeth would go screaming to the neighbors for help, yelling, there's two children in there. But it was hopeless. As the fire raged, there was no way anyone could save the boys now. Charlie and Braden had been murdered at the hands of their own father. The official cause of death for the boys and Josh was carbon monoxide poisoning. But the autopsies of the boys revealed that they had chop marks on their neck and heads. That was the surprise that Josh had for his boys and that once he'd incapacitated them with the hatchet, he laid Charlie and Braden next to each other. They were still alive as he doused their bodies in gasoline from a five-gallon container. He'd also poured gas throughout the house, and with a five-gallon container nearby, he struck a match, lighting himself and his boys on fire. Josh wouldn't leave a suicide note. He would never admit to murdering Susan. Just minutes before he murdered his boys and took his own life, he had sent emails to several people saying, I'm sorry, goodbye. He would leave a voicemail to his sister, Alina, saying he couldn't live without his boys and that he couldn't go on anymore, that he was sorry to anyone he's hurt. Then he said goodbye and hung up. He would also send messages to his local bishop and family with instructions on where to find his money and how to shut off his utilities. It would seem that after that court date on February 1st, Josh planned the murder of his boys and his own suicide in the following days, before his supervised visit with them on the 4th. He withdrew $7,000 from his bank account 
and had donated his children's toys and books to local charities the day before. Josh would name his brother Michael as the main beneficiary of his life insurance policy. Many believe that the murder-suicide was an admission of his guilt over killing Susan. She was going to divorce him. If he couldn't have her, nobody would. Now that his children had been taken away, and with the threat of failing a psychosexual evaluation and polygraph test, if he couldn't have his children, then no one would. But this case wasn't over. Not by a long shot. Stephen Powell, Josh's dad, would be convicted on voyeurism and child pornography charges. He would spend five years in prison and was released in July of 2017. He would die a year later, taking to his grave anything he might have known about what had happened to Susan or where she might be. Earlier in the show, I said to remember Josh's brother, Michael. If you'll recall, he drove with Josh from their father's home in Puyallup to Susan and Josh's home in Utah. He'd help pack up the house and drive their belongings to that storage unit in Washington. Michael would be investigated, too. When investigators learned that he had sold his Ford Taurus to a salvage yard in Pendleton, Oregon, and that Michael took special steps to make sure that his vehicle was taken there, police discovered that that particular auto salvage specialized in crushing cars. The timing of the sale was suspicious. It was not long after Susan disappeared in December of 2009. The police's theory was that Michael knew that Josh had murdered his wife and that he'd helped him dispose of Susan's body. Apparently, Michael's car broke down and was towed to Pendleton from Baker, Oregon, which is roughly 400 miles from West Valley City in Utah. That's about half the distance on that rental car that Josh had driven the day after his wife went missing. Remember that lost time when Josh left the police department and didn't wait for his minivan to be released, but instead called a taxi to drive him to the airport to rent that car for two days? So police had questioned Michael several times in 2012. They would describe him as being evasive about why he left the car at that location. He was also tight-lipped about why he had ordered satellite images of that salvage yard not long after Susan's disappearance. Police would go to that yard and caught a break in the case, sort of. As it would turn out, Michael's Ford Taurus hadn't been crushed, as he intended. Investigators would bring in a cadaver dog to go through the car, and the canine alerted inside the trunk, an indication that at one time there'd been a decomposing body there. A forensic team would take samples inside the trunk. However, DNA tests would prove inconclusive. And roughly one year after Josh had murdered his sons, Michael, his brother, committed suicide by jumping from the roof of a parking garage. In May of 2013, the West Valley City Police would announce that they were closing the investigation into Susan's disappearance. They just didn't have any other leads to run down. The Cox family would sue Washington's Department of Social and Health Services over the murders of Charlie and Braden. There's got to be something good, some legacy from Charlie and Braden. I mean, they lived through that. They, they were conscious through all that. We had a doctor that said they, they knew they were alive until until they succumb to carbon monoxide poisoning, so they were alive five to seven minutes. Oh my gosh. It's the worst of the worst. Anne represents the Cox family in the suit against the state for prioritizing Josh's parental rights over the safety of their grandchildren. 
I would speak to Anne about the trial during a prolonged recess due to COVID. I mean, I would like this jury, I mean, how often do you get to make history in your life, really? They have a chance to make history, and that's what we're going to ask them to do. And it's not being watched just by people in this case, like you just said, it's being watched by a lot of people. And the bias in this case was reunification at any cost, where it should have been concentrating on the safety of the children. A jury would find that DSHS was negligent, awarding the Cox family $98 million. The judge in that case would later reduce the amount to $32 million. The Cox family is appealing that decision, despite doing everything they could to save Charlie and Braden from their father. Not only did they lose their grandchildren, but they've lost their daughter. They don't know what happened to her. To this day, Susan is still considered a missing person. If you feel you are or could be in a domestic violence situation, please know that you're not alone. There's help. Call one 800 799-7233. From Cloud 10, Criminal Mischief is a pie-in-the-sky production recorded in the beautiful Pacific Northwest. We're produced by Brandon Morgan and myself. Music by Soundstripe. I'm Carolyn Osorio, your writer and host. <laughs>